0: This is Kendra Connor, worship leader at Christ Center Church, and you are listening to Christ Centered Cast. So, this last week, as a country, we celebrated Veterans Day. We honored veterans, those who've served in the armed forces, who uh, have uh, professionally dedicated their lives uh, to preserving the safety and the freedoms that we have in this country. We celebrated those who served in the various branches. Yesterday, I had the opportunity, additionally, somewhat unrelated, but I do know several veterans from this. Yesterday, I had the opportunity, myself and many of the C3 instructors, to participate in an all-day martial arts training so that we could enhance our skills, get better at performing and, and doing martial arts, so that we could then teach the children and the teenagers and even some adults in our C3 Christ Center Combat Ministry in order to be better martial artists but also our main goal, which is to help them to become better people and stronger Christians. Additionally, as I was thinking about this week and thinking about this weekend and thinking about this message specifically as we look at God's Word here at the American Legion, I was thinking about as a, a boy when I was growing up, one of the first things that I was involved in is Boy Scouts. Believe it or not, some of you who know me and know me well might find it hard to believe that at one point I was a Boy Scout, but I was one for many years, and my dad was very much into it. So we did all the different activities, and I got all the various badges and did the camping and that kind of thing. It wasn't necessarily my favorite, but there were things that I did enjoy about it. And you might be sitting here thinking, well, what do all of those things have to do with one another? What they have to do with one another is simply this the motto, whether stated or not, in all three of those different situations is to be prepared, or always be prepared. Whether you're training as a martial artist, yesterday we talked about awareness and being prepared when you go into a situation, not just reacting to what's taking place there. When you're talking about being in the military, a branch of the armed forces, no matter what, when you go to do your job, no matter where it is, whether on the battlefield or off, You're taught to always be prepared, to be prepared for whatever situation you might enter. And that, of course, is the motto of the Boy Scouts, to be prepared. That was drilled into my head at a very early age. And when we think about all those different scenarios and places and things, and I think about Ephesians 6 and the end of the book of Ephesians, I think about the fact that as a Christian, there are so many times in life that we enter situations and we go through our days and we are not prepared. We're not prepared to live as a believer. We're not prepared to share our faith. We're not prepared to communicate to others what it means to know Jesus Christ is our Savior. We go in and we just try to react to life. Things happen and we react. And man, do we hope that we're reacting in the spirit and not the flesh because we haven't gone in with a prepared mindset of how we're going to approach situations and people and relationships and those kinds of things. And that was a concern for Paul as well. You see, the scout motto, as I mentioned, that was burned into my brain, has impacted my thinking about heading into new and scary and unfamiliar situations. And while it can be important to have a pocket knife handy or even a means to build a fire, it's vastly more important to have the multi-tool of God's Word ready to go so that you're prepared for whatever the world throws at you, for whatever you encounter. And as we wrap up Ephesians today, we see that as Paul is concluding this letter to the church at Ephesus, he decides to give them a final rousing battle call to end the book, to end the letter. He's reminded them throughout the course of the letter, and I'm going to share with you and remind you as well, he's reminded them of their blessings, their salvation through faith, their oneness in Jesus Christ, the mystery of the gospel, strength found only in the Spirit, how to walk in unity, how to walk in new life, and how to walk in love, and then how to live all of these things out in the context of family and at work. And now, as we get to the end of Ephesians, which has been one of the most amazing and most enjoyable most beneficial studies of my entire life in ministry, as we get to the end of this, we see now that Paul wants them to know what he's been preparing them for. All those times that he said, therefore, all those times that he said, as a result, all those times that he said, for this reason, he wants them to know the reasons for which he wrote this letter. And today, as we look at the end of Ephesians, we're going to see the culmination of his message as we answer the question, for what reasons should we apply what we've learned from Ephesians? Why should we put into practice all of the things that Paul has shared to the letter or to the church at Ephesus through this letter? How do why do we apply it? What's the point of everything that Paul has written? And that's what we're going to see today. And that's the question that we're going to answer. As we look at the text and we look at the first ten verses or so we're going to see that the first reason that we should apply the words of God from the letter to the church at Ephesus is we should apply them, and we should apply what we've already learned, so that we are ready for battle. So that we are always prepared. We apply God's word so that we are able to go into a situation not just reacting, but to go in there appropriately, knowing how to communicate and what to communicate as best as is possible through the Holy Spirit's guidance, so that we're ready to take on the world. And Paul goes beyond even this world to address a different world that we need to consider and that we need to keep in mind that most Christians just ignore and maybe even be oblivious to, and that is the spirit world. Because as we look at those first 10 verses what we find as we look at the text is we find that we are actually in a battle that's bigger than any of us. You're a soldier, whether you realize it or not. You're on a battlefield, and you may not even be aware. You might be wandering through everyday life just completely ignorant to the fact that there is spiritual warfare occurring around you every single day. Paul knew this, and he wanted the church at Ephesus to know this, and he wanted to prepare them for it. And he says in those first three verses, Finally, So here we are, the end of Ephesians, finally, or the end of Ephesians, rather. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says, I want you to take this letter and I want you to be prepared with all of the truth that I have given you so that you can go out and fight a battle that is bigger than you are. But you're not going to have to do it all alone. He says, I have given you the strength to do it. God gives you the strength to be able to fight this battle. In fact, the worst thing you can do is try to go out there and do everything on your own, to try to do it in your own strength and your own power. Paul says, no, God gives us the strength to fight the spiritual battles that we encounter every day. He says, finally, be strong, but we get the qualifier after that. Not just be strong, but be strong in the Lord and in the strength of whose might? Your might? No. His might. God's might. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. This battle that is bigger than us, we have the strength for, but only because we get that from God. And we get that through the Son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit living and working in us and out through us. We're in a battle bigger than we are. But we can have the strength to fight it. But we have to be cognizant of the fact that we can't try to do it in our own strength because that is the quickest path to defeat. It's so much bigger than we are. If we're going to be ready for battle, we have to realize that this fight, spiritual warfare, is bigger than we are. We can't just grit it out. We can't just gut it out. We can't just walk it off. In fact, we have to go on our knees before the Lord and cry out to Him for the strength that we need to get through each day. So in this battle that's bigger than any one of us, it's bigger than all of us, really, we have the strength, for or we can have the strength for it if we ask for it. But we can also have the armor that we need to fight it. And that's what I love as he continues here in the text. And he says, put on the whole armor of God. It's an entire suit of armor. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So we also get a little peek into the devil and his methodology. The devil, is, he's not just one that's going to just run over you. He's not just, as my grandmother used to like to say, and describe me sometimes, as a bull in a china shop. He is tactical. He's brilliant. He knows strategy. He's been, as I like to say, doing this job for a very long time. He's seasoned in the art of spiritual warfare. And he knows weaknesses. He knows strategic position. He knows all about the high ground. He knows all of those different things. He has schemes, tricks and traps and all of that. But it's so encouraging to know that we can be equipped and prepared for that. That we can enter spiritual battle wearing the armor of God. And in a battle that's bigger than any of us and all of us, we need to be well equipped. We need the armor of God. We see that we can have the strength that we need to fight this battle and that we can have the armor that we need to fight this battle if, again, we choose to put it on. And he then tells us about an enemy that's bigger than all of us as well. So not only is this battle, not only is the theater of spiritual warfare bigger than all of us, the enemy is too. He has schemes and he actually has an entire military hierarchy. He's got different, There's different levels and positions it seems to indicate here in Ephesians. In verse 12, for we do not re- wrestle against flesh and blood, but get the breakdown here, against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So it, it almost seems like in his schemes, he has a strategy of different levels and different positions of spiritual, dark spiritual leadership. So again, he's, he's got a plan, and he's executing this plan each and every day as many Christians just kind of wander through their day in a haze being defeated on the battlefield that they're not even aware is taking place. Because we are in a battle that's bigger than us. It's bigger than us. We need strength that's bigger than us. We need armor that's bigger than us. Because we have an enemy that's bigger than us. He wants us to apply what we've learned from Ephesians so that we are ready for a battle that is bigger than we are. He then goes on to describe what it means to be equipped with this armor. And we get an awesome breakdown of the armor of God, what it is and what it means and represents. And as I'm thinking about the armor of God, Paul is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus from prison. He's being guarded by Roman guards who... And as any uh, good preacher or pastor or speaker will tell you, one of the best things that you can do if you're trying to communicate something is to find a way to practically visibly apply it, to give people something that they can see. And I can just imagine Paul laying on the cell floor, writing this letter to Ephesus. He's written all these things that we looked at over the past few months. And then he gets to the end, and he's saying, what are the most important things that I can share as I wrap this letter up? And then he sees a Roman guard not too far away from him, fully decked out in, in tactical Roman armor. And he says, I think I can do something with that. And the Holy Spirit takes over and gives him the next words that we have that are the key to spiritual warfare through the armor that's represented by the Roman soldier, the Roman guard. So let's look at those. In this battle that we can be equipped for, how are we equipped? We see in verse 13 that we can be equipped with the armor of God. He he goes back to what he just talked about in putting on the whole armor of God and standing against the evil forces. Verse 13, therefore, so you just read it. He said, I just wrote to you about this battle that's bigger than we are, an enemy that's bigger than we are, but that we can have strength, we can be prepared. Therefore, now, let's take a look at the armor, he says. Take up the whole armor of God. And he reiterates it again, repeats it, restates it, that you may, <coughs> excuse me, that you may be able to, Withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. So he recognizes that there is—it's—he's basically as a Christian, you're going to have a bad day. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, spiritually speaking. If you're not prepared, it's an evil day. That is the world system. We have three. There are three fronts of attack that we get attacked on as Christians. That is the flesh, the world system, and the devil. And he's talking about the evil day here, where they live and work and, and all of that. So he says, Stan, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, because you're going to need it, if you're going to make it. And then he goes on to explain what they are. Stand, he says it again, verse 14, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breast, breastplate of righteousness. I love that he starts with the belt of truth. Because in Roman armor... The belt was actually what held everything together in the armor. Because if you weren't wearing the belt properly and you didn't have it fastened tightly, all the other pieces of your armor would shift and move and do all kinds of crazy things when you were trying to move in battle and do what you needed to do. So the belt was arguably perhaps, well they're all really important pieces, but it was the one that holds everything together. Kind of like in *The Incredibles*, uh, the Miss Elastic, the 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 mom. I can't remember her name is leaving me. Elast, thank you, Elastigirl. Yes, because she that and that's the imagery there. In case you guys didn't know that, hopefully I'm not spoiling anything. For She's Elastigirl because she holds the whole family together. But I digress. So the armor, the belt, holds all the pieces together and keeps them where they need to be. It's super important. It does an- another important function as we look at the next piece the breastplate of righteousness. So you've got the belt of truth, the belt of truth which is essentially the truth of God's Word. It's it's the foundation. It's all truth. Truth is not relative, even though that's what the world would tell us. All truth, actual truth, is God's truth. And it is non-negotiable. God's Word is true, and that's what we have to base our truth on. That is, any truth that is truth is God's. And when we understand that and we live according to the truth of God's word, that holds everything else in our lives together. And that impacts and affects all the other pieces of the armor, like the breastplate of righteousness. And he put those two together, I believe, for a very specific reason. Because imagine this, if you will, the breastplate of a Roman soldier was typically somewhere around 70 pounds. So imagine strapping a 70-pound weight around your chest, front and back, and trying to carry that around and move and fight and do anything that you needed to do. It would really feel like 70 pounds, right? Especially if it's not fastened tightly and it's shifting and moving on you while you're trying to do things. The belt of truth, though, holds the breastplate of righteousness in place and actually alleviates some of the weight on the body as you're moving, so that it doesn't feel like 70 pounds. Isn't that amazing? And when we think about the breastplate of righteousness and how Paul probably would have thought about it. He's talking about the righteousness of Jesus Christ and how our righteousness is found in Him. And the thing about if your righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ in your life is not based on the truth, then the righteousness shifts around as you try to go through and do spiritual battle. Because then you end up trying to do spiritual battle in your own righteousness. And that's a recipe for disaster because that's your shifting righteousness, isn't it? It's not a solid righteousness that's found in Christ. Because when we try to live according to our own righteousness, we have our own standards of what's good and bad, and we try to do entirely what we think is good and bad. Well, that's kind of a moving target sometimes. When we have the, the belt of truth and the, the breastplate of righteousness fastened the way they should be, and we understand God's Word, and we understand who Jesus is, and we understand that our righteousness comes from Him, that everything is where it needs to be and we can effectively fight in spiritual warfare. So he goes on from there. He talks about the belt, which holds everything together. The, uh, the, and then the breastplate of righteousness does one other important function. It was 70 pounds because it needed to be. Because if it wasn't able to keep swords and arrows and shrapnel and all kinds of other things out, you're dead. And without Christ's righteousness in spiritual warfare, you're dead spiritually in the water. It protects your heart, which is one of your spiritual heart, too, one of the most important organs in your body. So he goes on from there, talks about the belt, talks about the breastplate, and then moves on to talk about another couple of pieces, another few pieces, in verse 15. So we've talked about the belt. We saw the breastplate, 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Really fascinating to me that he talks about the gospel of peace in a passage that's all about armor and spiritual warfare. But I think about that, and I was thinking about it yesterday, even during our martial arts conference all day, you know, because when you get into an altercation or a situation where people get angry and it goes to some form of combat, it can be very easy to get angry to the point where peace is nowhere in the equation. And when you've lost that, everything becomes reckless and wild. That's kind of how life is too. And the thing about the gospel is that when we go through life spiritually and we know the gospel, we know the good news, we have the peace that passes understanding that we get from Jesus Christ, no matter what we experience, no matter what kind of hostility we encounter, no matter what kind of aggression and warfare that we face, we can walk through that with the peace of Jesus Christ. Because we have feet that are shod with the gospel of peace, and when it, these they were actually called the name for this particular uh, boot sandal that they wore was called a caligae, and that was actually where uh, if you ever heard of uh, Caligulus, that guy. So he actually it's like little sandal is what his name actually means when they called him that. It wasn't his real name, but that's just what they called him. So, but a caligae was a sandal that was like a uh, it was threads of leather that were like cross-hatched, and they were fit in such a way that they made it so that it did not move on your feet. Have you ever had a pair of shoes where it, the shoe kind of shifts and moves on you while you walk, and you end up with blisters at best and a rolled ankle at worst? Well, these particular sandals, these shoes, they were fitted to the person and strapped in such a way that they did not move, they, but they, they were still comfortable, like they were fit that well. And they also had great traction on them, so you weren't sliding like you would think in in some sandals or shoes. There was traction on the bottom, and he he had that. He probably looked down at the soldier's feet and thought, "Yeah, man, that is that's stability right there, stability personified." So the traction of the sandal, the threading around it, perfectly fit, and there was a level of comfort there, but also a, a utility. And the gospel of peace gives us that as well. It's a gospel that gives us the ability to to navigate the warfare that we encounter, but to do so with the peace of Jesus Christ, but also in a way that is effective. And ultimately, it is the foundation for the whole system. Because without the gospel, we've got nothing. It's what we stand on. It's what we move with. So we see these these sandals, these caligae, these shoes, the gospel of peace, and then he goes on to move to another piece of armor he transitions in sixteen, so he talks about the uh, the uh, the belt, the breastplate, the shoes, and then he moves to the shield, verse sixteen in all circumstances. Everything you do, everywhere you go, no matter who you encounter, no matter what you're involved in, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith, I love this one. That was actually called a scutum. And a scutum was, there were a couple different designs on a scutum. There were the circular scutum, which were fairly common. But the ones you saw more often than not was one that was more like a half cylinder. And it covered the, nearly the entire body. So if you can imagine, a Roman soldier, most of probably like from down to the shin all the way up to the shoulders, he had a shield that was like a, a half circle, like a half cylinder. But still was able to, because of the curvature, work around and do what he needed to do over the top. But one of the great things I love about this shield, there are a couple things I love about this shield, is that it covered nearly his entire body. The shield of faith covers nearly the entire body. So as you encounter things and you go through life and you fight spiritual battles, faith, which we can more, probably more accurately, maybe not more accurately, but more easily define as trust, the trust of God, placing your trust in God, that, that's where your faith comes from. It's trust. That is, it shields you from the different temptations and the spiritual warfare that you encounter. Because something comes into your life, you want to respond a certain way, and you want to react, and you want to attack, do you always say, I don't have to do that, because I trust the Lord in this. I have the shield of faith. I trust that God has got me in this. I know that he's going to protect me, that he's going to take care of me, that he's going to deal with my enemies. So it's very defensive in nature, but there's one other thing that I think is very fascinating about this shield that I love a lot. The scutum would often have a very hard center in the middle, a protrusion of sorts, whether it was metal or some kind of hard material, that jutted out from the middle of the shield. And this isn't often talked about, but I just love this stuff, so here you go, you guys get it. So it was often used offensively, so that you could hit people with it. And that's why it was extra reinforced right there in the middle, so it could actually become an offensive weapon of sorts under the right circumstances. When I thought about that, and I was thinking about faith. I was like, well, that, that's it, isn't it, too? Because we can walk into spiritual battle with confidence because of our trust in the Lord. And we don't have to sit there and let people attack us. We can actually proactively be like, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not concerned about this. Yeah, I have a healthy, I have a healthy concern because spiritual warfare is it's a big deal. And it's tough. But we do have strength. We do have armor. We have all those things that come from the Lord. But we don't have to live in fear. We can go shield first in the battle. And we can go with that the protrusion out there, jutting out there. We can hit things with our faith, essentially, is what I'm saying. So we don't have to passively let everything come in. And I, I love that because I think it's James talks about resisting the devil and he will flee from you. There's a resistance there. And he he speaks of, Paul speaks of, here the flaming darts. So we have this defensive shield that we can, if we need to, hit things with it. But also, its real primary, uh, primary benefit was to protect us from getting hit by things. And he talks about flaming, specifically flaming arrows and things. They would often take their shields and actually dunk them in water before they went into battle. Because that would extinguish the flaming arrows that came in. So there's a whole lot that Paul is taking into account here when he's thinking about each individual piece of armor. So he talks about the shield. The shield of faith, our faith, protects us, but also gives us some confidence that we can also move forward. We don't have to just let everything that Satan throws at us come at us. We can have a boldness and a courage and a confidence that comes from trust in the Lord. So he talks about the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take the shield of faith. And I always kind of wondered why this one came next and why he didn't talk about it before because it seems like it was a piece of like the body armor. you got body armor and then you've got the shield and the sword. But I really spent some time thinking about this because the next one he talks about in verse 17, the first part of verse 17, he says, and take the helmet of salvation. Helmet of salvation. As I was thinking about this, I've I've kind of been going back and forth, I, I think, As a pastor, I tend to think about things that are deep but are a bit different than whether or not I'm a Calvinist or Arminian. I think about things like, when does life end? When does life begin? What is life? How does the soul interact with the body? And I also like medical things, and I like medical shows. And one of the things I was thinking about as we talk about when life begins and when life ends is that someone is considered clinically dead when their brain stops working. Everything else can be functioning perfectly in the body. But if there's no hope for their brain to be restored, and there's no life in the brain, no functionality, they're considered dead. And that's when you have to make end-of-life decisions and all of that. So on some level, medicine considers that to be death, brain death. And I got to thinking about that. And I got to thinking about how nothing in the body truly functions properly without a brain that functions properly. And then it clicked, and I was like, wow. Without the helmet of salvation, undergirding everything that will really, it is the thing that controls everything else, our salvation. Everything comes from our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what gives us the ability to do everything else. So he talks about the helmet of salvation because it protects the brain. It protects the place where all the rest of how we do life comes from. And we forget so often about the importance of our salvation. As Christians, we go, oh, okay, you know, I've been saved like 30 years. It's just kind of who I am now. It's been decades. you know. And we forget what it was like when we first got saved and it changed everything. Or if we were a child, how it began, because we, maybe if we're a child, we don't remember what we were like before salvation, but it began the life trajectory that we're on that kept us by God's grace from where we could be. But we forget that power. We forget the importance of our salvation and how it protects our Christian life. So he says the helmet of salvation, and remembering the importance of going back to your salvation often and thinking about what it meant for Jesus Christ to die for your sin so that you could have a relationship with God and the power that that brings into your life. Helmet of salvation, and putting on that helmet and wearing it every day, getting up and thanking God that you aren't where you could be by His grace, that He has called you out from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that you are a soldier in His army, putting on the helmet of salvation. So He talks about the belt, which holds everything together. He talks about the breastplate that protects many of our, most of our vital organs. He talks about uh, the shoes that help us move through life safely, efficiently, and effectively. And he talks about the shield that protects us, but incidentally can also be used to move forward. And he talks about the helmet of salvation before moving into one of my personal favorites, both literally and metaphorically, the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. So he talks about that in the second part. He says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So as we move forward with our shield, with confidence and courage, trusting in the Lord, we also can use, if we know how to use it effectively, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to fight the forces of darkness, to bring light into situations that need light, and to cut, as we see in Hebrews, because the the word is sharper than any two-edged sword. I don't think that this was missed in its writing. I think they're they're obviously intentional in that. But the thing about a sword is that it's only as effective as its user. Because I can't tell you a number of times when I started using nunchuck how many times I hit myself in the head with a nunchuck. And I gotta tell you, they make foam trainers for a reason. I found out the hard way why they make foam trainers when I started with wooden ones. and very quickly learned, you know, I think I need to get some of those. Because it hurts, and you can't be effective with those. But, however, over time, and I know some of you are laughing, picturing Pastor Sam himself in the head with a big piece of wood on a chain. It's hysterical. I laughed too, but it really hurt, i got to tell you. But with time, over time, and practice, and doing it over and over and over again, and getting more comfortable, and that's really a big part of it, is getting comfortable with the weapon and understanding What it does and how it works and those kinds of things. Once I had some faculty with the weapon, then I could do things I couldn't even imagine that I could do with nunchucks or bow or any other weapon, sword in this case. That's just it. A sword is only as good as its user. And if someone tries to wield it without knowing what they're doing or how it works or what it is and understanding it, you can cause untold destruction to yourself and others. And that happens sadly, very sadly, with the Word of God as well. When we see it get twisted and used to hurt people. We have to understand the sword of the Spirit. That particular weapon was called a gladius more often than not. And it was typically a shorter sword. And it was a bit rounded and would often have... uh, It wasn't a straight blade necessarily, though you could have them, but you would often find curvature in the blade. The gladius... And what we see are the sword of the Spirit. As believers, we have to learn how to use God's Word. We have to understand it. We have to spend time with it. We have to practice with it. We have to read it. We Memorize it. Because that's what the Holy Spirit brings back into your mind and into your life when you need it in cases of temptation. He says, get to know the sword of the Spirit. Get comfortable with it. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So he gives this lengthy list of weapons and armor, primarily armor, but also a couple weapons there, to be equipped to be ready for the battle that we face. Because we're in a battle that's bigger than us, but we can have the tools that we need to win that battle. Because one of the things that we should be ready for, or we should learn and apply from Ephesians, is that we have to be ready for battle. I love in the last three verses... He he gives these all these pieces of armor and then he talks about arguably the most important aspect of the whole system here. And that's prayer. So he gives them all of the different items, explain all the different examples, looking at the Roman soldier. And then 18, 18 through 20. Praying at all times in the spirit. So it's like he's continuing on his thought. He says, Take, you know, take the sword of the spirit. And then he says, Pray in the spirit. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So we see that this battle is bigger than us, but that we can be equipped for it. But it's ultimately, the battle is ultimately won, folks. Hear me well. Hear me well. It's ultimately won through prayer. You have all of these things, but you've got nothing without prayer. That's where the power is. The power of the Spirit working through all these different pieces of of weapon and armor power Of the Spirit, and he tells them he's praying at all times in the Spirit. If we're going to win this spiritual battle, we have to pray consistently for ourselves and others because we are all fellow soldiers on the field. Some are aware that they're in a spiritual battle, some are just wandering across the battlefield and they're looking at the flowers on the ground. That's all they see, they see the pretty flowers. They might see some a nice rock formation. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, they even see other people on the battlefield, but they don't recognize that they're soldiers. If you can imagine a battle theater where there's just people walking through, and soldiers, mind you, that don't know why they're there, don't know why they're wearing this stuff, they're just kind of wandering around, taking in the sights, as things are blowing up around them and people are dropping on the ground by them, and they're just kind of there. And that is many Christians in life, wandering through the battlefield, oblivious to what's taking place. We have to pray for one another. We have to pray for ourselves, but also for one another. Paul's talking about both here. And to do so consistently, praying at all times in the Spirit. That's speaking of not necessarily an, an active, concentrated, all-day, everyday prayer from the standpoint of not doing anything else in life, but rather, he's talking about practicing the presence of God recognizing that you are constantly in the presence of the Lord, and as there is opportunity and need, talking with the Lord throughout the day. That's to pray constantly. That's what he's talking about here. As Christians, sometimes we look at the Captain Americas of the Christian life, and we go, I can't be like that guy, why should I even try? He prays three hours a day. Well, for whatever reason, and the Lord's will and his ability, he's given that guy the grace to be able to pray for three hours a day. But that doesn't make him a better soldier. That just means he has a different job. He's in a different spot on the battlefield. We can still pray constantly, even if we don't pray in the same way. And it's still just as valid, and we can't get discouraged by the Captain Americas, because we ultimately have the same power and draw on the power from the same place, and that is God. We have to pray constantly, consistently, for ourselves and others, fellow soldiers, we also see here that we win the battle not only through prayer, but also through the advancement of the gospel. Because what's one of the quickest ways to win a battle? Overpower the enemy. And what we see here is that as we advance the gospel and more and more people join the fight, that's God moving and working and the kingdom growing. Paul says that here. He says, "Pray for all the saints, and for, for me, also for me, don't forget to pray for me. Why? Because he recognizes he's got a different place on the battlefield. And he says, pray for me that, my words, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Pray for me as I go out and speak to people and preach God's word and share the gospel and plant churches and write letters and do all the things that God wants me to do. Pray for me that I can do that effectively in the fight for which I am an ambassador and change, that I may, may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Help me fight the good fight, folks. Pray for me because I need the power of God in my life, and I need Him working in my life, and I need Him working through you, and for all of us to know our roles and jobs on the battlefield and to move forward in the confidence that we have in the gospel, fully equipped to fight an enemy that's bigger than we are. That's what He's telling them here. That's what He says. I wrote this whole letter to you guys, with all that awesome truth and all those different subjects and topics so that you can get prepared for battle. We should apply what we've learned so that we're ready for battle. Then the last part, the other reason. A much shorter reason, notably, but I think just as important because... As I was looking at this, it just it kind of clicked. And I, I believe it was the Holy Spirit working, and I don't take any credit for it. I believe it's the Lord in this situation. But I, I think that the other reason, that the way the letter is structured, and why it's structured this way, is so that we would understand what Paul is getting at here. And what he says is this. The second reason that we should apply what we've learned from Ephesians is not just so that we can be equipped and ready to fight and ready for battle, but it's ultimately also so that we can encourage others. We can encourage others. Because truth is not just something to be known. It's something to be done. And when Paul wrote this letter, whether he made the decision cognitively to or not, I think he did probably, this letter was an encouragement to the Christians in the church at Ephesus. He encouraged them through his words. He encouraged them through his ministry. He encouraged them through his life. And I believe that that's a call that we all have as believers, to encourage and build up and help equip one another. Where do I see that here? It's very interesting because the end seems, it could seem like some kind of an innocuous ending to a letter, like, hope to see you soon, guys, take care, peace out, deuces, that sort of thing, where you're like, okay, he's just wrapping up. But I think it's interesting to note here as we look at the end in the last four verses and I believe that's what we're talking about here, applying Ephesians so that we can encourage others, he says this, so that, there's those magic words again, right? So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. And then he mentions a guy, specifically by name here at the end, Tychicus. He says, so that you may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Let that sink in for just a second. So he sends Tychicus. Sends a messenger. Why? Specifically, not just to deliver a letter but to perform a specific purpose, which was his function, or specific function that was his purpose, to encourage the church, to encourage the believers. Now, what's really neat to note about Tychicus is this is this phrase is essentially mentioned twice. Here, and I believe it's Colossians, almost the exact same wording. So Tychicus did this more than once. It wasn't a one-off for him. And when Tychicus did this, when he delivered these letters... And he did so, in the way that he did it, he had to travel thousands of miles with these letters from A to B, from Paul to the churches. And he had to go through all manner of encounters along the way. Hostile people, hostile weather, hostile terrain, you name it, he would have encountered all of it, traveling in those days thousands of miles to deliver a letter. That's more than just a long day for the USPS. But it was for a purpose. It was to encourage other believers. And Tychicus, he made that commitment. He was faithful to that task. Faithful to the encouragement of other Christians. He was noted for that in multiple places in Scripture. He's mentioned, I believe, four times by name in the epistle. So this was this was his life. He made this commitment to be faithful to fulfill the purpose of encouraging other believers. And you better believe every day for Tychicus was spiritual warfare as he traveled. Every day Satan and his forces were trying to stop that guy. And honestly, you might be sitting there thinking, I don't think I can be a Paul. I'm not much of a writer. I'm not a church planter. I don't think I would do well in prison. Maybe that's what you're thinking as you're sitting there. And maybe that's not what God has for you. Maybe you're not a Paul. But you can be a Tychicus. Because all that truly requires is a dependence upon the Lord, a strength that comes from Him, a faithfulness and a commitment to the task of encouraging other believers. He wanted them to understand as he wrapped this whole thing up that that was what that looks like with flesh on. Spiritual warfare in the flesh. Tychicus. We have a call to encourage others. As he truly concludes in 23 and 24, Paul notably wraps it up like he began. And he gives us the most important aspects of, of not only our lives, Tychicus' life, Paul's life, and all of it, as we look at all of the gospel in its entirety. He says this, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. So he gives them the spiritual warfare. He lays it out. He puts flesh on it as an example through Tychicus. And then as he wraps the letter up, he wraps it up exactly as he began it. If you were to go back to the beginning of Ephesians. And he emphasizes three things. God's grace, God's peace, and God's love. Because no matter what he said anywhere else in the letter, that's the thing we need to get a hold of most in life. To be effective as a believer, to fight the good fight, to encourage others, is to understand God's grace, salvation, through grace, that we did not deserve, God's peace, a peace that passes all understanding when we face the hostility of this world in battle, and God's love, a love that is sacrificial. And interestingly enough, that word there, incorruptible, I like the word incorruptible, but there's another word that could be used there in in the Greek, and that word is undying. I think that's fascinating, because that's a picture of a persevering love that never stops, it never quits. It's a love that Tychicus had as he traveled thousands of miles to encourage fellow believers. It's a love that kept Paul going each and every single day while he was in prison, wondering if he was going to die in there, and at one point knowing he was going to. It's an undying love. It is a love that Paul prays that the church at Ephesus and all believers would come to realize and understand and accept from God But notably, look at this. What he's really saying here, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love undying. So he's calling for grace upon believers that commit to loving the Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. You might think, well, I can't do that on my own. You're right. We can't on our own. But we can when we know Jesus and we love God with the love that we've received from Him. But that takes a commitment to that, doesn't it? Like any love relationship. But it's those things that help us when we communicate them to other believers to encourage them. that You can know a God of grace, a God of peace, and a God of undying love. And that is the second thing that we learn as we look at Ephesians and we wrap it up. We should apply this so that we can encourage other believers. Because you got folks dropping all around you in spiritual warfare. They need you to help them up, help them get back in the fight, and to keep going. So you got two things today that you're going to take away from this, that you should take away from this, that I believe Paul was saying. And the first is this. Here's how we apply all of Ephesians and specifically today. You have a choice to make about whether or not you're going to truly enter the battle. You're already in it. You're already on the field. You might be walking around picking flowers or just casually talking to people who are fighting, but you're there. You have a choice about whether or not you're going to engage the enemy. And my encouragement first and foremost to you today is to realize that you are in a battle, but that you can be equipped and you can have the strength of God to fight it. Make the choice to do that. As we wrap up today, recognize what God has given you to be able to fight spiritual warfare and call out to Him for His strength. That's the first thing. The second is this. Make the commitment to encourage others. You're on the battlefield. You recognize that now you're in a fight that maybe you didn't realize was taking place before, but your eyes are opened. And you see people that you love and care about, people that you're in the the same unit, same platoon, and they're just falling. They're struggling. They're hurting. And you have the ability to encourage them. Do it. Make the commitment to do that, that you are going to be an encourager, that you're going to be a Tychicus, Everybody bow your head and close your eyes. In the next few brief moments, in the quiet of your heart, make any decisions or commitments that you need to do today. Oh God, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the opening our eyes through the scriptures to the fight that we are in, that maybe we've either forgotten about or weren't aware of, or maybe have just been ignoring. God, I pray that as your soldiers here today, as we sit here in this American Legion, that we would recognize that you've called us to battle that you want us to rely on your strength, to trust you, but also to be equipped with your armor. I pray that, like Tychicus, we would go out to the fight, that we would make it our goal to encourage others and use the gifts and abilities that you've given us to share the message of peace and grace and love. God, I pray that today we would leave this place with eyes on the field, that we would be looking for others who might be struggling in the battle and that we would pray with them and for them and that we would ask for prayer ourselves. Thank you for listening. Check back next week for the continuation of me Vangelism. God bless.